We take a look at some of the most intriguing position battles and training camps across the league on this episode of Fantasy Football in 15. everyone thanks for starting your week with us here on fantasy football in 15 at the athletic i am michael beller i am joined by Derek van riper dvr today is the day we've been waiting for this is the first episode of fantasy football in 15 and this is our 56th episode and this is the first one that we've done where we have every single team in the NFL practicing everyone's wearing pads guys are getting out there getting ready football season right around the corner this is the first day that uh, we've had that and it really does feel like football is in sight how you doing today doing great because yeah I think for the first seven eight weeks that we've done this show it hasn't really felt like football season yet and now it's starting to and I think one thing that's really made things feel different of course not having preseason games not having games to watch on Thursday Friday Saturday not getting a look at players even second and third stringers that's normally what we're doing right now Mm -hmm. so seeing everybody at practice starting to get a little bit of a news trickle going to that makes everything feel more real inside four weeks now for the start of this season we're finally getting close yeah I'm sure the day will come back where we are complaining about Uh, The preseason's too long. Do we really need all these preseason games? Do we need all these training camp practices? And it's not going to be in 2021. And we are learning this year the value of OTAs, minicamp, training camp, preseason games, not just in news, but in getting to see these guys actually on the field and getting a feel for how players are going to be used, how uh, backfield um, committees are going to be uh, have the work shared out between the two guys. It's really a valuable thing. We're not going to be taking it for granted, certainly, next year or any year, hopefully, into the future. We do have a couple of pieces of news to dispose with really quickly here. First, Chris Hogan has completed his trip around the AFC East. He has signed with the Jets. He's now been a member of all four teams in the AFC East, so kudos to uh, Chris Hogan. Probably not much of a fantasy impact there. And then just a really great story, Alex Smith activated off the PUP list. Of course, the last time we saw him on the field, suffered a really devastating leg injury. Looked like it should have ended his career. The way that he has rallied back and gotten himself back into a position where he could be activated and maybe competing for a starting job, just a hell of a story. Great news for Alex Smith, an easy guy to cheer for. You love to see that he is able to get off the PUP list. I don't think He's really going to push Dwayne Haskins for a starting job in Washington, but the mere fact that we can even hint at the conversation uh, tells you what sort of guy he is, and it also tells you where we're going on this episode of Fantasy Football in 15. Now that training camp has started, now that every single team is practicing, thought it would make some sense to focus on some of the fantasy meaningful position battles that are happening across the league. Now, unfortunately, because of what this preseason is, we can't talk about position battles the way that we do. We're not going to see, for example, Mitch Trubisky versus Nick Foles in a preseason game. It's just not going to happen. We're going to have to try to figure these things out behind the scenes in ways that we really haven't uh, had to in the past. We're going to try to do that for you. We're going to look at three specific position battles here on this episode. The first one I want to talk about, DVR, is in Philadelphia. This team could not stay healthy at wide receiver last year. Uh, A hell of a job by that staff to win that division despite having so many wide receiver injuries all season long. 
We know they went out, spent the draft pick on Jalen Rieger. Uh, they've got Alshon Jeffrey still on the team. Deshaun Jackson still on the team. J.J. Ortega-Whiteside was someone who they, I think, wanted to lean on a little bit more last year. That just didn't happen. When we look up and down this receiver group, what do we think we're going to be making of it once the season does begin? I think we're just going to be frustrated week in and week out. I mean, there's talent there, but the wild card really is Alshon Jeffrey and whether or not he's able to come off the pup list and be ready for the start of the season or at least in the early weeks of the season. Yeah, you almost get clarity if he's not, though, because if Mm -hmm. he's not there, that's one really talented guy that you don't have to account for. In that case, I think you could probably narrow the receiver tree down to two viable fantasy options in deeper leagues, Deshaun Jackson being one, Jalen Rager probably being the second one. I think a lot's going to flow through the tight ends. We're going to see a lot of 12 personnel. We're going to see a ton of Zach Ertz. We're going to see a ton of Dallas Goddard. Uh, We're going to see Miles Sanders catching passes out of the backfield. So it's an offense that I like, but it might have the most confusing group of wide receivers possible. And frankly, I'm not sure I'm going anywhere near any Eagles receiver until we get to double-digit rounds. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Uh, Jalen Rieger is the guy who ended up on my Flex Leagues team, uh, the leagues that uh, our pal Jake Seeley put together. And I want to say I got him in like the 14th round, something like that. It was definitely a teen round, and it was a super flex league. So every quarterback's getting drafted. So that's obviously going to push everyone down the draft board a little bit. He's probably going to go a little bit higher than that in your standard league, but it still is a double digit round situation. And I have trouble in believing in the upside for anyone else in the passing game, any other receiver in the passing game than Rieger because of what you said with the tight end. Zach Ertz is going to be the number one pass catcher on this team. Dallas Goddard is going to have a big role. He had a big role last year, and I don't think there's any reason to think that it does anything but increase this season. Miles Sanders, I think, also is going to have a larger role. And last year you had Jordan Howard there, a guy who did what he did but doesn't catch a ton of passes. This year, whether it's Miles Sanders or Boston Scott, you've got pass-catching backs on the field at all times for this team, and all these guys are going to get used. So it's just hard for me to buy an upside case for Alshon Jeffrey with all the injuries he's had for Deshaun Jackson when he has had plenty of injuries himself and now is into his mid-30s. I just don't see it. I think those guys are more best ball guys, maybe guys who we get a little bit excited about with a good matchup and a low price in a DFS week, but I just can't see buying into them from a season-long fantasy perspective. It just feels like a losing bet, even understanding that you're really not having to pay very much for them if you have to pay anything for them at all on draft day. If you remove the crowd, does Arthago Whiteside interest you at all just from a pure talent standpoint? Like if injuries befall one of Deshaun Jackson or Jalen Rager and we're looking at Arthago Whiteside as maybe the second guy here, could he be viable at some point? Really young as a rookie last year and was banged up too. I mean, he played mm-hmm. all 16 games, but he just wasn't he wasn't right. I think that's pretty clear yeah. at this point. Is it a bad second round pick by the Eagles or is it actually a pick that's going to pay off here at some point in 2020? I, can I say neither? Is that, is that okay? I mean, I don't know. It's way too early to say it was a bad pick by them, obviously, and I don't think that's what you're saying. Um, but uh, I, again, like it's just hard for me to really buy the, the case for any of these guys because of the outsized role played by the tight ends and running backs on this team. I think 
J.J. Ortega-Whiteside could be a very useful real-life player for the Eagles this season. I just can't see there being enough targets to go around. I I just think, and I know you said take the crowd out of the discussion. If there are a couple of injuries, then maybe some balls are forced in his direction. Um, But obviously, we can't predict that, and I do think that's what it would take. I mean, do you see anyone? That's that's maybe the best way to say it. I don't see any of these guys, with the possible exception of Rager, uh, being someone who... Uh, steps up above everyone else and commands an important, meaningful target share. I just don't think that's going to happen for Jeffrey, for Jackson, for Ortega Whiteside. It feels like a bunch of also guys and then really everything running through the tight ends and the running backs. Yeah, I guess the the question I was driving at was more like, what would it take for you to become excited about this group of receivers, (laughs) even with a guy who was a second-round pick a year Mm ago? I guess it would take a Zach Ertz injury because you know Dallas Goddard could absorb some of that target difference, maybe all of it, but there'd still be a void, right? They probably wouldn't use as much uh, two tight end personnel if they were to lose Ertz. So I think that's the one thing that could make me kind of change my tune with my approach with this group of receivers. All right, well, how are you approaching the Denver backfield? Because this is the one that has given me fits all draft season, and I just can't figure it out. We have plenty of split backfields across the league, but I feel like I have a handle on what Indy is going to do with Jonathan Taylor and Marlon Mack. I feel like I have a handle on what the Rams are going to do, or at least I feel comfortable in how I am approaching it. I feel comfortable with how I'm approaching Detroit's backfield with DeAndre Swift and on Johnson. This Denver one really is throwing me for a loop for two reasons. Number one, Philip Lindsay has been very good for the Broncos in his two years in the NFL. Last year, 224 carries, goes over 1,000 yards for the second straight season, seven touchdowns. This is after a nine-touchdown, 1,037-yard year on the ground as a rookie. Both years, he's caught 35 passes, uh, one year on 47 targets, one year on 48 targets. He's not a you know, danger, super dangerous pass catcher, but he is clearly adept at doing it. But then they also go out and they spend big money on Melvin Gordon, another guy who has been a very good running back across his entire career. Not the most efficient back in the league, but he does what he does. He is very reliable in short yardage situations. Uh, we have learned over the last few years much better of a pass catcher than he ever got credit for, either at Wisconsin or early on in his NFL career. He can be dangerous out there as a receiver, and it just makes it hard. It doesn't feel like the most natural fit for two different backs, right? Stylistically, it's not like they're the same, but they're not obviously different either, and that just makes it very hard for me to wrap my head around what to do here. More often than not, if I end up with one of them, I end up with Lindsey, but it's only because he's the cheaper play in drafts and auctions right now. It's not because I feel so much better about him than I do about Gordon, which really leads me to the fact that more often than not, what's happening is I'm just avoiding this backfield altogether. I've been getting Lindsey because I think the price is pretty nicely discounted. I mean, I think Melvin Gordon's going to be a pretty significant factor in the offense. They wouldn't be giving him $13.5 million guaranteed on this two-year deal if they didn't have some designs on making him at least the Royce Freeman like short yardage plus sort of guy, but I think you wouldn't pay that much if you're only going to use him for that. So right. I think this is going to be a case where Denver's going to have to run the ball a lot if both of these guys are going to be viable week in and week out. I think it's going to be a frustrating situation because Philip Lindsay is good enough to do a lot with 12, even 15 touches and it become a weekly flex option or even an RB2 once we get to bye weeks and once injuries start to pick apart our rosters. I really just don't have a good feel for Gordon. I mean, the, the holdout last year was a bad choice. Austin Eckler, of course, was playing really well. He'd never really got the same role and just didn't look right once he came back. 
You go back over his entire career. I know he had a lot of offensive line issues in San Diego and Los Angeles. The Chargers always had either a bad line and or an injury-riddled line. So under four yards per carry in all but one season. So I think there's a little bit of a prove-it on the efficiency side with Melvin Gordon. And, and there's health concerns, too. I mean, aside from the holdout last year, only played 12 games in 2018. Uh, only played 13 games in 2016, only played 14 games as a rookie in 2015. So these guys can both be three-down backs. That's the mm-hmm. interesting thing about them, right? Yeah. There's not an obvious pass catcher and an obvious early-down right. guy. I guess that makes it a little harder to figure out what they're doing personnel-wise if you're an opposing <laughs> defense, so that's good for the Broncos. It's just bad for us as fantasy players. I don't have Gordon anywhere yet. I think he's going at least a round too early, if not two rounds too early. And I'm going to keep taking that chance on Lindsey because I think they're going to design this offense to take a lot of pressure off of Drew Locke. I think there's going to be 40 touches total to go around for the backs between carries and what these guys can bring in the passing game. So even if it's 25 and 15 favoring Gordon over Lindsey, I think Lindsey can be a 70 to 80 yard guy with 15 touches pretty easily. I think he's shown us he's capable of doing that thanks to his, his explosiveness and his efficiency. It's a really tough backfield to crack in with everything they've done around Drew Locke in getting Cortland Sutton a year ago or two years ago in bringing in Jerry Judy in the draft this season. Noah Fant, of course, uh, last year. They've just, I think, really want to invest a lot in this passing game, too, and that's why I just have trouble buying into the backs and really do have trouble buying into Melvin Gordon again. Philip Lindsay can't just go away no matter how much money you gave Melvin Gordon with how good he has been for this team the last two seasons. One more situation to look at. It is the one that I referenced earlier in Chicago. A true, honest, real-life quarterback battle. Off the top of my head, I can't remember the last time we had... I mean, this is a true 50-50. Anything could happen in this Chicago quarterback battle. I can't remember the last time we had a real battle like this on a team that I think has some legitimate playoff aspirations. I mean, even with everything going wrong for the Bears last year, they still went 8-8. Eight and eight. They still have that great defense. They've got some interesting skill position players. Of course, Allen Robinson is chief among them. And that's really what I, what I want to get at here. Nick Foles, Mitch Trubisky, they're only going to be interesting in either super flex leagues where every quarterback is interesting or as an occasional streamer in traditional leagues. What I want to talk about is... Do we think one of these guys is better than the other for Allen Robinson, for David Montgomery, for Tariq Cohn, Anthony Miller? Are we cheering for someone if we're already invested in one of the Bears' skill players? Is there a quarterback that we want to win this, or is it just six and one and half dozen of the other? I think it's six and one, half dozen and the other. I think the problem here is these are both floor guys at this point. I guess you could make an argument that Trubisky having a little less experience, could still reach another level. You could probably argue that Foles doesn't turn the ball over a ton, so that makes him a little better than Trubisky for the offense as a whole, but I don't think the philosophy changes a whole lot. I mean, it's Matt Nagy's system. Whoever wins the job plays in that system, Mm -hmm. and the tree is really skinny. We've talked Mm -hmm. about this before. I mean, Allen Robinson, Anthony Miller, David Montgomery, it's like – a Tecmo Super Bowl sort of offense. You just know who your options are. As long as they stay healthy, you're going to get plenty of touches and targets from that trio of players, regardless of who the quarterback is. I Every time I look at this situation, every time it comes up, I wonder to myself, why exactly did they not bring in Cam Newton? Like, if, if they're, they're so close otherwise, they have everything else in place to be a legitimate, good playoff team, and they've left it to Trubisky and Foles instead of taking the chance on Newton. Like, if you take the chance on Newton, you have Trubisky around, Newton's shoulder's not right, fine, you fall back to Mitch. 
this situation, it, I don't think it elevates the team no matter what they do. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I, I, you know, without being inside the minds of anyone, I think that this was probably a, a Nagy thing, right? Uh, Nagy was very comfortable with uh, Nick Foles. Obviously, they spent some time together. So there's a, a comfort in the system uh, with Nick Foles and knowing that uh, he, that Matt Nagy feels comfortable in being able to turn the offense over to him. And I think that's maybe what they were looking for. They were looking for at least some sort of stability after what they've uh, dealt with with Mitch last season. But I do think that uh, speaking from the perspective of a Bears fan, I would have liked to see them shoot maybe a little bit higher in the upside department (laughs) at the quarterback position. I also agree with you in that it doesn't really matter. If I already have Allen Robinson on teams, I don't really care who wins this quarterback position. I trust he's going to be Allen Robinson. Same goes for Anthony Miller. Same goes for David Montgomery. And I guess another important point is that I am not avoiding those guys because of this quarterback situation. Obviously, it's less than ideal, but Allen Robinson has been dealing with less than ideal quarterback situations his entire career and has still been delivering just as recently as literally last year on this team with Mitch Trubisky. David Montgomery, I think, is going to get 300-plus touches this season. The quarterback might not be great, but I still think he's someone who, at his price, is a very, very gettable, reliable, bargain-worthy running back. So I'm not really worried about the situation. It's one to keep an eye on. It's definitely the biggest or one of the biggest ones from a real-life perspective. Just don't think it has really any weight in the fantasy world. And that is going to do it for this episode of Fantasy Football in 15. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We would greatly appreciate it. And also, you can still get yourself 40% off an athletic subscription for that first year if you go to theathletic.com slash football in 15. For DVR, I am Michael Beller. Again, thanks for starting the week with us here on Fantasy Football in 15. We will be back with you tomorrow. Until then, thanks for listening, and have a great day.